Father, we come before you today praising you in song, through prayer, and now through giving. Lord, we give praise to you in that we recognize what is in our hand has come from you, and we give back to you gladly. We give back to you sincerely. And Lord, would you take now and use these things according to your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 40, where we are picking up at verse 13 today. Jeremiah 40, verse 13. You know, there are some Sundays where the order of worship just fits together, and hopefully by the end of the sermon you'll see how I didn't even realize how well it all fits together. This is not my doing uh, this is clearly the work of the Spirit, and sometimes I feel like the hymns have done enough preaching on their own. There's nothing really left to be said, but let's go ahead and do it anyway. So, looking now at uh, Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 13, this is God's Word. Now, Johanan the son of Korea and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you know that Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, would not believe them. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, spoke secretly to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Please, let me go and strike down Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he take your life so that all the Judeans who are gathered about you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah would perish? But Gedaliah the son of Ahikam said to Johanan the son of Korea, You shall not do this thing, for you are speaking falsely of Ishmael. In the seventh month, Ishmael the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama of the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliah the son of Ahikam at Mizpah. And they ate bread together there at Mizpah. As they ate bread there together at Mizpah, Ishmael the son of Nethaniah and the ten men with him rose up, and struck down Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, with the sword, and killed him, whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. On the day after the murder of Gedaliah, before anyone knew of it, eighty men arrived from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria, with their beards shaved and their clothes torn and their bodies gashed, bringing grain offerings and incense to present at the temple of the Lord. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, came out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he came. And as he met them, he said to them, Come in to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. And when they came into the city, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the men with him slaughtered them and cast them into a cistern. But there were ten men among them who said to Ishmael, Do not put us to death, for we have stores of wheat barley, oil, and honey hidden in the fields. So he refrained and did not put them to death with their companions. Now the cistern into which Ishmael had thrown all the bodies of the men whom he had struck down along with Gedaliah was the large cistern that King Asa had made for the defense against Baasha, king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it up with the slain. Then Ishmael took captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters and all the people who were left at Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites. But when Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done, 
They took all their men and went to fight against Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. They came upon him at the great pool that is in Gibeon. And when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces with them, they rejoiced. So all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son of Korea. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces with him took from Mizpah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, after he had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, soldiers, women, children, and eunuchs, whom Johanan brought back from Gibeon. And they went and stayed at Geruth Kimam near Bethlehem, intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans. For they were afraid of them, because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. Father, would you take now your word and speak to our hearts. Speak hope and healing and truth. Speak salvation. Speak deliverance. Speak help to us in our time of need, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, these terroristic acts are no doubt horrible to read, horrible on their own, but what makes them even more reprehensible is that they are committed at the hand of a fellow Judean. You remember the situation that Judah had been pummeled by the Chaldean army as God had promised for their refusal to repent. The whole country had been left in shambles. The majority of the people had been carried off into exile Their whole situation was very grim. And now this ragtag remnant that was left behind likely had more questions than they had answers. You imagine they had to wonder, was it better to have been left in Judah or to have been taken in exile to Babylon? What was the better fate? Were they to remain submissive to the king of Babylon there? You know, we long for independence. You can imagine their desire to, to rise up against their occupiers. Should they submit? Was there any hope for a shot at the good life, so to speak? Or was this whole thing just going to remain a train wreck? Would they ever see their capital city restored? And in particular, would they ever see the temple rebuilt that they could worship there again? How do you pick up the pieces in a war-torn country? In hindsight, one might give the advice that, uh, that Gedaliah seemed to be following. We saw last week his approach was, hey, let's get to work. Let's bring in the harvest. Let's get done, get done what needs to get done in order to prepare for winter. And in some ways, after tragedy, this is what you have to do. It's, it's quite simple, although life is never simple, and certainly after a tragedy like this. But rebuilding has to begin somewhere, and you begin thinking about the most basic needs, food, shelter, water, clothing, and you just see that you have to get to work. I remember in 1998, I had to look up the date on this um, I remember the event quite well, but I didn't remember all the details of it until I looked it up this week. But there was a tornado that went through North Hall County, and the church that I lived or the church that I served in was in the middle of a lot of the destruction. The, the tornado was an F3, which in, you know is a serious tornado, but in Georgia is particularly strong. And uh, it went uh, it was on the ground for 13 miles, 12 or 13 miles, killed 12 people, injured over 170, did a lot of destruction. And because of where a church was situated, FEMA and GEMA and all the local and state federal uh, disaster response groups made their headquarters there. And so, 
you know, you can imagine we shut down operations and we shifted into recovery work. And I remember going out and and, and seeing homes that I had been in in the weeks previously. One uh, home in which two of my kids in my youth group uh, lived was just sheared off at the basement. And they were in the basement with the, the family. They survived. Uh, but the house was just, it was gone. Um, another house that we went to, a member's house that we helped at, uh, the, the slab was just, again, sheared off, except there was a piece of a wall and a bathtub. When you walked up, it was a piece of concrete with a piece of a wall and a bathtub. And the father and mother and their son had climbed into that bathtub, and the father had held a mattress over them as the tornado went over and took off the rest of the home. I mean, it was a, it's one of those things that you see news feeds of and so forth, but when you walk through it immediately after it happens, when you're with people that you know and love, when you're helping in the process, it, it's, a, it's a different perspective. And, and in, in particular, the shock that just settled over, I mean, for us, even in the recovery, there was shock, but for the people most affected, there was clearly shock. But what struck, stuck out to me of this whole event was how quickly people just stood up and said, okay, let's get to work. And they just jumped in and, and both those affected and both those who were unaffected. If you've ever seen a tornado, it can go through and destroy one home and leave another unscathed just a few feet away. But everybody joined in and began picking up the pieces together because that's what had to be done. Well, Judah is in a similar situation, although it's much worse, of course, than a 13-mile swath. Much of their land has been decimated. And now it is in this setting of utter decimation that they're picking up the pieces. They're still in shock from the attack of the Babylonians that now this event occurs. The acts are hideous enough. The betrayal is appalling. But the setting of this makes it much more heinous. They were at their most vulnerable. They were at their weakest when this Ishmael comes in and and carries out this murder of their new leader. And so for the people who had been brought so low already, possibly thinking that they were at their lowest, now discover that there is even further down to go. You ever been there? (laughs) You think you're at the bottom of the barrel, and then something else happens, and you realize that there's another level of low. Well, Gedaliah had been appointed as the governor by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, for the people that remained in the land. We talked about the reasoning for that, the strategy of that. This was a difficult task that had been given to him because he had to walk a tightrope, so to speak, to navigate what it was like to serve those who had appointed him, given the task that he had been given, recognizing that it was, in a sense, futile to resist because this was God's Instrument of discipline. He had promised and he had sent. And Gedaliah seems to have known Jeremiah's message well. He seems to follow along with it. And so he is committed to, to lead well. And he tells the people, let's go, let's get busy, let's bring in the harvest, let's get ready for winter. And one of the things you may have noticed as we read the text, however, is that Jeremiah is not mentioned at all in this passage. And we're not given a reason. Uh, we understand he's here somewhere. He was in the land. There's no indication that he left the land during this time. It's likely that he was in the middle of this all, but he's not mentioned. But the message that he has been giving and the message that he will continue to give, as we'll see him coming back into the picture in chapter 42, hasn't changed. And Gedaliah seems to grasp this message well, that they are to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, that he is, the again, the God-ordained instrument of discipline, so it is futile to resist 
for all the positive that we can say about Gedaliah, his leadership, his ability to, in a sense, walk this tightrope of, of difficult leadership between Babylon and his fellow Judeans, we do see that uh, he clearly had one fatal flaw. These leftover leaders who had been scattered out into the open country, once the Babylonians left, they come back and they're led by this man named Johanan. And they come to Gedaliah and they say, Do you know that Baalis, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? Now, Ammon was nearby to, to Israel, evidently, or Judah. It wasn't affected by the attack uh, by Nebuchadnezzar's army, uh, or at least uh, it was less affected because the king is still uh, free. He's not been taken captive. And so he seemingly has some agenda. Uh, is this the perfect opportunity to stake a claim on this piece of land uh, to, their, to their east. And anyway, he, he, whatever his agenda was, we, we're not told, but it's easy enough to understand in the realm of politics and government and war and armies and fighting, whether he wanted to, uh, to, to grow his, his domain or whether he was just uh, uh, thinking that he could jump on the, the, uh, the, the train, so to speak. But Gedaliah refuses to believe the rumor. And after dismissing this news, Johanan comes back to him privately as if to, to kind of drive the point home and says, you know, please, you know, let me, let, let me take care of business. Now, you notice that there's several things that are repeated uh, throughout the passage. One is the lineage of these guys that we might know who they are. We're going to talk about that in a minute. The other is the location at Mizpah. And while we don't know the significance of all of these things, some of them are clear. Mizpah had a history. You may remember if you're doing the Bible reading plan with us, you saw Mizpah back in Genesis 31 when Laban and Jacob met and they shook hands and agreed not to harm each other and cross this line. That's Mizpah. That's, that's what's mentioned there in, uh, in Genesis 31. And so it's here that Johanan comes to him again and says, let me go and take care of Ishmael. Let me kill him. I think we can appreciate his desire. There's a sense of nobility in that he wants to protect the new leader. It's a time of war and he recognizes. But it seems that he's not only noble in that regard, he really has a wisdom that understands the ramification if Gedaliah were to be assassinated. Uh, he, he, he recognizes Nebuchadnezzar is going to be offended by this. He's the one, this is his hand-picked man. He put Gedaliah in charge. You kill him, Nebuchadnezzar is going to find out and he's going to send uh, retribution, so to speak, to take care of you. The other thing is that it's just the rebuilding effort that the people are in. Whatever ground they had covered, as little as it may have been at this point, would be undone as they would have dealt with this uh, atrocious act of Gedaliah being murdered. Of course, the morale would have been affected of the people as well. We see this in verse 15. He says, Why should he take your life so that all the Judeans who are gathered about you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah would perish? In other words, it's not just about your life, Gedaliah, but it's about the entire remnant that's left. Everybody's going to be affected by this if you don't listen to this counsel. But for whatever reason, Gedaliah doesn't believe him, even commands him not to take action, even though while that in itself is noble to not you know, to not go assassinate in a kind of a counter-assassination, a preemptive strike. Uh, he should have at least stepped up his security forces, you know, uh, li- lifted his alert a little bit, been more aware. And that's especially true as we get into the next chapter because here comes Ishmael to visit with 10 of his men. Why wasn't Gedaliah tipped off by this? Why wasn't he extra aware? Why didn't he call in extra security? We're not told, but... 
we're reminded, first of all, of the, the lineage of each of these guys. One, Ishmael is a royal, is of, of a royal line. Now, we have to remember that the kings had lots and lots of children. They had multiple wives, concubines, and so forth. So these royal lines went far and wide. Uh, you can imagine the, the, eh, maybe the attitude that some of these ones that were further down the line, but they were of royal blood, what kind of attitude and uh, uh, entitlement they might have developed. A person like Ishmael might have, might have had. Um, he was also a chief officer of Zedekiah, chief officer of the king. So he, he had served. He had done his time. He was in a position of power and influence and so forth. He should have been one the people could have trusted. And while we're not told of his motivation, again, we can imagine, was he jealous? He thought Gedaliah shouldn't have been made governor. He should have been made governor. He was in the royal line. He was the officer of the king's court. Maybe he should have been put in that position. Maybe he was angry at Gedaliah for not being more resistant to the Babylonians. He would see him as a sympathizer. Or maybe he had some kind of other political aspirations conspiring with the Ammonites as he was sent by Babalus. We don't need to know the answer because we're not given it. What we do need to see is this act of betrayal. He should have been an ally to his people and to their leader. He should have seen, as Johanan did, that the people would be scattered if he harmed the leader. He should have understood that the greater damage that would come uh, from doing this would be far greater than anything he could gain personally. And while we could go on and on berating the terrorist for what he did, not only in killing Gedaliah, but the Babylonian officers who were with him, the others who were at the meal, we're going to see he goes on to kill even more. But there is a bigger question that comes up in this setting, and that is, where is God? Jeremiah is not mentioned, but neither is the Lord. Where is God in all of this? We don't see him act. We don't see him speak through his prophet. So where is God when we experience the horror of betrayal or some other traumatizing experience in this life? Maybe it's a friend who's turned their back or worse, done something that was directly wrong toward you. David experienced this again and again in Psalm 41. He says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Get a lie, I could have written those words. Maybe you lost a job in a way that was unfair. You've had a boss who walks all over you. Maybe it's a little closer to home, a spouse, a parent, even a child that has betrayed your love and crushed your heart. All of us have experienced betrayals, and we can acknowledge that they hurt more when, that they're, when they are at the hand of a family member, another believer, or a friend. Like a tornado that tears through, and ravages a land, or an army that tears through and ravages a land, our hearts are broken and crushed by acts of betrayal. So where is God? Even when God doesn't act in the way that we want, or when we want, we are told again and again that He is never absent. He is there. Psalm thirty-four, eighteen says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus in quoting Isaiah, said, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Part of the mission of Jesus, to bind up the brokenhearted. He is with us, even near to us, when our hearts are broken by the sins of others against us, by the fallenness of the world that we live in, or even by the repercussions of our own sin. He is near. Judah had been brought low. They were going to fall even lower. But God is not absent. 
We must continue to trust Him even when we are brought lower in this life, just as we've seen through reading through Job. I don't know about you. I know that uh, sometimes the Bible reading plan, you feel like you're slogging along, but, but Job was really good for me this time. It's been a while since I read through it. And I'm reminded why this is so relatable. You have these friends of Job who are no friends. (laughs) They discourage him. But was God absent? No. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So may we continually to run to our refuge and trust him to hear our cry. Well, Ishmael is not finished with his act of treachery. We see next that after this murder, before anyone had heard the news of it, he concocted another plan. Why? Again, we're not told his motivation, but it involves this group of refugees, these 80 men who are traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate. Now, it seems that they they would most likely, their mourning that's signaled by their, their cut skin and cut hair and so forth, that they, uh, that they understood it would be likely because of the attack from Babylon, but it seems they didn't know the destruction of the temple because they're coming. It's the fall feast time, so that's likely why they're headed there. And so they're mourning the destruction of, of Babylon. They come with offerings. Now, some take from the offerings that they have that there, there are no animals here, and so this means they understood that the sacrificial system was inoperable, so to speak, because of the, the damage to the temple, but... They often bought animals at the temple. So, you know, we don't know what these guys knew, but their intention is to come into worship. And so Ishmael takes advantage of them, takes advantage of them by tricking them. He feigns weeping as he meets them, and then he lies to them, saying, I'll take you to, to get Eliah, who he had just killed, knowing he was dead. And then upon entering the city, it seems like he had his man waiting, uh, his men waiting there in, in ambush, and they, they killed all these 80 refugees. They threw them into a cistern. This is not a well like what we think of in you know, our own wells, the little c- cylinder things. This is a big kind of you know, cavernous type thing that they would dig out. Water was a, is a big deal even today, uh, but water was a big deal. And so they would, they would hew, hewn out uh, of rock, uh, these underground cisterns, to, to, uh, to gather and collect water. Uh, I remember being in one in, in Masada, which was where King Herod had a palace, and he had and there was a huge cistern there. It was bigger than this room, had steps you could walk down into it, and it was, you know, huge. So it was something like this. It's identified as the one that King Asa built as a defense. It's mentioned in First Kings chapter 15. And so he throws all the bodies into the cistern, and then afterwards he takes captive all the remaining people that Nebuzaradan had left in his charge, possibly including Jeremiah. He may, this, is, this is where Jeremiah may have been, although we're not told. And they head off toward Ammon. Now, where Johanan was at this point, again, we're not told that, but when he gets word of it, when he hears about it, he rallies what troops he has left, the forces that he has with him, and sets out on a rescue mission. He, he seeks to, to, uh, to bring back these captives. And whatever forces he had, when Ishmael saw them, there, there, there is no indication of some great fight. It says that Ishmael escaped, so there was some kind of skirmish. But it says when the people saw them, in verse 13, they rejoiced. They knew they had been delivered. So whatever forces Johanan brought, it was clearly greater than any forces that Ishmael had. And Ishmael runs off to Ammon, and we don't hear any more of him. And so now the people are reunited with the rest of the remnant, described in verse 16 as soldiers, women, children, and eunuchs. And they go and they set up this temporary camp near Bethlehem. 
The morale of the people, again, had to be incredibly low at this point. Just catastrophe after catastrophe in this experience, in this very short amount of time. Many of us have been through similar experiences. Some of you may be there now. And that's what makes, again, the story of Job, I think, so relatable. When you're suffering, those who aren't suffering or have never suffered don't understand at all. They'll often be the ones to encourage you with quips and cliches, sometimes even Scripture. But it often comes across as discouragement. They'll usually suggest a solution. They'll play Monday morning quarterback. They'll tell you all the ways that you went wrong. Maybe they'll heap shame and guilt on you or point out the way that they have done things right in this life, which is why they are avoiding the suffering that you are enduring. I recently read a joke that Job's friends must have been first-year seminary students. They had all the right answers but didn't have a clue. (laughs) I think there may be some truth to that. We're not given the dialogue that was occurring among the people, but it's not hard to imagine. It's not hard to relate to. Sir, I'm sure that there were some who thought they had all the answers, but most of them were just despondent, discouraged, full of fear, lacking any hope. And somehow a suggestion comes up that they should go to Egypt. Egypt? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Of all the history that Israel has with Egypt, this is where you guys want to go? But that's the way it was with Israel and Egypt. They had a dysfunctional relationship, like two codependent friends. They, you know, Israel had the resources and, uh, or I'm sorry, Egypt had the resources. Israel had the land, the geography. If you ever look at a map, you could see why Israel was so strategic for Egypt. If Egypt could keep Israel in place and keep them happy, they didn't have to worry about Babylonians, Assyrians, Persians, and others coming through that small piece of land. And so it was a relationship of uh, uh, mutual benefit. So the people thought that they should go there. Notice that they don't call out to the Lord. They don't seek the Lord's help. There's no indication of that. They seek to find the answer in Egypt. And verse 18 says that they left in fear of the retaliation that Nebuchadnezzar would seek for Gedaliah being murdered. What a mess. What a mess. Why did it all happen? Where is God in all of this? Well, We know why it all happened because we've been in Jeremiah for over a year now and we've been through the first 40 chapters. Why it happened was that the people refused to repent. The people would not respond to God's word. The people were told, if you won't repent, I'm going to send this army from the north to to destroy you. And that's exactly what God did because the people didn't. And now there's this handful left and they are headed south out of the land. The land. Their land, the promised land that God had given to them, the promised land that God had given to them, brought them into and then blessed them in. He brought them out of Egypt, up out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery into this land. And now they had turned this land into something of a trinket, a charm to remind themselves, we are the chosen people. And that's why they refused to believe. They thought God was their genie in a bottle. If you think only the Old Testament people did this kind of thing, don't miss this. We can do it too. Today, there are Christians who treat their faith, 
their knowledge, their theology, as some kind of trinket to remind themselves that we are superior. They have all the right answers possibly, but there is little to no fruit of the Spirit in their lives. There is grace for them, but there is grace for no one else, including those closest to them. They can use all the right vocabulary. Here, I'll bring it real close to home. Reformed, election, confessional, predestination, sovereignty. Yes, we are sometimes these people who speak of others as those people, who look down on people who don't have the proper theology or even unbelievers who have yet to come to faith. Folks, we can fall into the same traps as the Old Testament people of God because this is a heart issue and all of our hearts are a mess. Even after we're saved, our hearts remain slippery and deceptive and we can easily fool ourselves into thinking that we're superior when we are actually the very opposite of what Christ described that we should be like. Poor in spirit, meek, hungering for righteousness, peacemakers, merciful, those who mourn. Don't fall for the man-made theology that turns theology, good theology, theology that we shouldn't reject. It's not the theology that's the problem. It's what we do with it when we turn it into a trinket that makes us feel like we're superior. Instead, may we not look to external saviors like Israel did or Judah did with Egypt, whether it be listening to the right speakers, pastors, preachers, reading the right authors, having the right books on our shelves, even the good works that we do. But may we come in humility before our Savior and rest wholly on Him for our righteous standing. And when we do, rather than offering the right answers, we will instead know the power of grieving with those who grieve. Rather than rebuking others, we will work on the logs in our own eye, And look for ways to strengthen others in their faith, knowing that we are beggars who have been shown grace and not icons of a religion who have pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Rather than extolling our virtues, our choices, our right paths that we've taken, we will instead busy ourselves with the virtues of Jesus, the one who came as a servant and laid down his life, who considered our needs above his rights, and who gave up his status. What does this look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? That's the fruit of the Spirit. But we often start with love, joy, and peace, and we forget kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. Look within your own family. Look within your own home. Consider how you interact with people in your job or in your neighborhood. How are your relationships with others in your church family? Look at your tone, your word choice, how you speak with people who are different than you. Kindness, gentleness, self-control, love. To be clear, do not hear me saying, get out there, do better, try harder, and you will be saved. This fruit I'm describing is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not our fruit. It is the fruit born in us as a result of the Spirit of God living in us. God's Spirit comes to dwell in those who by faith are trusting in Jesus alone. So don't hear this as works righteousness. Our Savior died that we might live and have an abundant life, a life abundant with fruit, (laughs) fruit of the Spirit. 
that we might live abundantly producing this fruit of His. He died at the hands of wicked men who wrongly accused Him, wrongly convicted Him. He was betrayed. Much worse than what Ishmael did, that Judas kiss. But in spite of this betrayal, God accomplished our redemption. In fact, it was through this betrayal. He accomplished all His purposes in saving a people for Himself. And so we run to Christ who is our Savior for our salvation, but we also run to Him who understands our suffering in this life. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been in every respect tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we come to Jesus for redemption. We come to Jesus for sympathy. And we come to Jesus for help in time of need. Redemption, I think we get that. We understand that. We, 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 that, that, that comes maybe the easiest for us. Sympathy, maybe that sounds a little too weak, a little too mealy mouth. And if so, I would encourage you to go back and read the Psalms that we read this morning or read the whole book of Psalms or read the Sermon on the Mount or read all the Gospels. Help in time of need. I think a lot of Christians believe that they're saved, that God has them in their hands, but really struggle to believe that He is a help in time of need. And I think this is where the biblical imagery, so much of it that we, it was in our order of worship this morning that we, that we read about, that we sang about, this can be really helpful. God is our fortress. He protects us. He is our rock a sure foundation that will not crumble. He is our shield who defends us from attacks. He is described as the cleft of the rock, that protection in times of storm. He is our portion, our high tower, our helper, and our good shepherd. Whether we have been been betrayed by a loved one, by our bodies in illness, by the powers at work in this world, or even by our own wayward hearts, our God redeems Our God sympathizes and our God helps us as we trust in Him alone and wait patiently for Him as we call out to Him. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Father, that you have redeemed us, we give you thanks that you sympathize with us. Sometimes we struggle to believe this. We would rather believe the lies of Satan, that we should be ashamed and run in fear, rather than seeing that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us and run boldly to the throne of grace. Lord, we would rather believe the lies of the evil one and run and hide. Lord, help us to see that you sympathize 
that we can come boldly to the throne because you do. And then, Lord, help us to believe that you are a present help in time of trouble, even when we don't see it. In the midst of betrayal, in the midst of the fallout, when we are at the bottom and we feel like there's no further down to slip, and then we slip further, that you are there and you hear our cry. Lord, help us to know this, to believe it, and then in faith to believe and cry out that you would work and move and show yourself truly our fortress, our refuge, our good shepherd. Lord, I pray for those who are hurting today, even as they hear this message, wondering what help will look like. And I pray that you would peel their eyes open enough to see that you are their only help. You are their true hope, that they would rest in you. Lord, we commit our ways to you. Our lives are in your hands. Every breath comes from you. We have nothing that we can hold on to. As soon as we die, it's all left. So may we not put our hope in anything that we possess, what we've accomplished, or anything else that we attain. But may we rest wholly in Jesus. And as a result, may it humble us that we would be gracious people, abundant in fruit that comes from your Spirit living in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.